Thank you. My name is Clint H. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm glad to be here. I appreciate being uh, included. And particularly on this weekend when there are so many uh, wonderful speakers and such a, a wonderful time to be here. Uh, I have uh, known some of the speakers for many years, some for not so long. Uh, but every uh, everyone that is on this uh, program that I have heard speak, I've enjoyed immensely. And so I know you're going to have a great, great weekend. And I certainly enjoyed Steve's talk. And I want to thank you very much for that talk. Uh, and I'm looking, uh, and Jean, uh, oh, dear friend from years ago, came and I wasn't here in time to hear her talk, but I understand it was wonderful, and I appreciate that. Um, we're very fortunate. We're very, very fortunate. I know Nancy that's going to speak on Sunday morning, and Bob that's going to speak tomorrow night, and Beverly, I've heard the Alan on speaker. I don't know, Bill, I'm looking forward to what he has to say, and I'm sure I'll enjoy it very much. Who's here that, uh, and Steve asked this, let me ask it a little differently. Is anybody here in his first 30, his or her first 30 days of sobriety? Could you just stick your hand up? Anything? Yeah, okay. Welcome. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. The, uh, age of miracles is upon us, and has been, really. I was thinking a minute ago about Easter coming up, about how that story of the resurrection is the greatest celebration in all of Christendom around the world. And it means, uh, resurrection means brought back to life. And if that was a miracle, so are we. And if we are, you will be. You will be restored to a vital, active, happy life. In fact, the very the a guy called me the other day and said I he likes to look up these words in the dictionary. He looked up the word recovery. He said one of the definitions of the word recovery in the dictionary is this: the extraction of something precious out of that which appears to have no value. And I thought that is a sweet, sweet definition, and we all know that. So I'm glad to be here. I'm glad I was glad to have uh, Paul and Mike. Uh, Pick me up at the airport. We always hook up. I uh, I said to Paul, how'd you know who, who I was? Because he called my name and said, oh, he said, I was just looking for some cocky bastard from California. To watch <laughs> I was that <laughs> So we got, that's the language of the heart. <laughs> A few years ago, I was in Indianapolis, and the guy that picked me up, they called me. I called my office, I said, uh, for messages earlier in the week, and uh, the receptionist said, uh, well, you sure have an interesting life. I said, what do you mean? She said, uh, well, I didn't know you were going to be in Indianapolis this weekend. I said, how do you know that? And she said, well, there's a message here. Somebody called and said the guy that was going to pick you up at the airport in Indianapolis this weekend would uh, have a wooden leg and be carrying a big book. And, uh, and sure enough, he had a wooden leg and a big book under his arm. He'd been in uh, some kind of a motorcycle accident, lost that leg. We had a lot of fun together that weekend where people that ordinarily wouldn't mix. And I uh, wondered what would be in the parking lot to get us into town, but uh, uh, he had a little Honda and we had fun that weekend, hooping around, carrying on. He took me back to the airport on Sunday morning. He had a, a gift for me in a little paper bag. Uh, I opened it up. Uh, he was quite pleased. Yeah, I got this one. And it, it turned out to be his first wooden foot. And, and you go, a lot of crap goes through your mind at a moment like that, you know, like, how the hell am I going to get through the radar deal with this thing? <laughs> I made him keep it. I didn't try to take it. <laughs> Funny stuff. AAs. AAs. There, uh, Steve said something that, uh, triggered a thought. You know, we all, uh, the whole point of the drill here is, uh, about a relationship with God. And that's very tough for a lot of us. It's very tough. Because our notion of God 
is not the kind of thing that invites us, you know. We think he's mad or we think he's like way out there or won't help us or whatever. Uh, somebody said one night, of all the gods that I could have chosen, I chose one I didn't like. And I, boy, I heard that. And then somebody not long ago pointed out that part in the book where it says that, uh, our ultimate authority is the loving God as he may express himself in our group content. So, it seems like a group has a loving God. No matter what kind of a God the individuals might have on that day, the group has a loving God. And I think it's right. I think that this group, this assembly, this conference has a loving God tonight. And for the seven conferences that have taken place. Because it's a success. It's meeting needs. And if you're new and you're not so sure about what kind of a God you have, and I can tell you, you have one. Whether you don't like him or not, doesn't matter, but you have one. Whether you don't trust him or not, doesn't matter. You have one. You have one. But if you really want to get with a loving God, go to a meeting, because your group will have a loving God. I think that's part of what happens in a meeting of alcohol. I don't know why I got off on that trip, but I was just thinking about that whole thing, about the idea that the feeling in a group, this sense of unity. That You know, Wilson said an interesting thing about it. He said this unity comes from a common problem and a common solution. This sense, He described it this way, the feeling amongst passengers of an ocean-going liner moments after rescue from shipwreck. Don't you love that language? It wasn't a week later when all the resentments had come back, but moments after the rescue. There's a moment. That's a sweetness. There's something that you can feel. Because the sense of separation is gone. That's what happened this, even when Steve was talking. You get, we came together, all of us, touched by that talk. A wonderful, wonderful feeling. We need that fellowship we crave. And you'll find that here. And it'll become very precious to you if you want. And we didn't have it before. I grew up in a church where we had a common solution offered, but not a common problem. I was different from those people and I knew it as a child. I was skeptical and aloof and I couldn't believe the stories they wanted me to believe and I didn't believe that God would help me. And I thought I, thought I had a, a very strange notion. I had the feeling that it was somehow up to me to demonstrate to God what I could do for him. And if I could just be good long enough, he would notice and help me out. But about the second day, I'd start having dirty thoughts again. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then it's too late. You have to start all over again. And uh, and it never was my job to demonstrate to God what I could do for him. Never. It took me a while in AA to notice that the text says God will demonstrate through us what he can do. And he can do a lot. It says the task is to ask him to remove my fear and direct my attention to what he would have me be. Have me be patient, faithful. Not good. So if you're new here, there's a different language here. There's a different way of being here. There is something that is going to change you very fundamentally if you stay. And yet, oddly enough, drinking is wonderful, wonderful practice for Alcoholics Anonymous. Because it's like a day at a time, you know. You did all of that a day at a time. We all did that. We all did that. And we come together like this, and we're still looking for a day at a time. This is our day. This is the day where there's a miracle in it. We call it the quiet miracle of a sober life. And it's infinitely sweeter than anything I ever imagined. And yet, when you come in here, a strange thing has kind of happened. I I was walking along the street in Glendale, California, not having any idea years ago that I would be at two meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous before the day was over. No idea at all. I'm just walking along the street. 
and a car pulled up at the curb and the driver called my name and I looked over and I recognized the guy. His name is Don and he's a bail bondsman and uh, that's how we met. Uh, we'd done a little business together. And he said, uh, Clint, I'm going to take you someplace today. And I'm just shuffling along the street. At the time, I lived in a, a little room. I had, I called it a, a garage for a number of years. Linda and I, my wife and I were over in that area a few years ago. And she said, I want to see the garage. And so we drove down in there. She said, is that it? And I said, yeah. She said, that's not a garage. And I looked. She said, that's a shed is what that is. <laughs> and by God, it was. No car had ever gotten into that. Little and I guess I was trying to be a high-bottom drunk or something. <laughs> Of the garage, and it was a little shed occupied by. It had four little rooms, little little rooms in it, little eight by ten rooms. Mine had a sticky linoleum floor. Mine had a wet mattress on a steel frame of a cot. Mine had uh, uh, nothing else in it except some old clothes that I still had and. Um, and a radio. I had a radio, a clock radio, and I and, and I had an old copy of Playboy magazine uh, on one, you know, particularly optimistic day. I'd made an investment. <laughs> My social life, you know, it was. <laughs> We gave up a lot, didn't we, to come into here? <laughs> Honey, I'm home. <laughs> man, man, man. Smelled bad in there. There was a shower out someplace. Uh, I could hear it sometimes. I never visited it personally, but I, uh, I could hear it out there. And that's where I lived, and I'd lived there longer than I thought I would live there. In fact, I never imagined I would live in a place like that. Eleven dollars a week, and I uh, lived in there, and I died in there, and I went to jail out of that place, and I went back there after jail, and I uh, uh, knew a bail bondsman in Glendale, California. And he saw me shuffling along the sidewalk one day, early in the morning, pulled over, told me I'm going to take you someplace today, and I don't know where he was going to take me. But we wound up at something called, about noon that day, something called the Alano Club of Glendale, whatever that may be. And uh, I sat down with you. Nothing has been the same since that day. And I didn't, uh, it wasn't the last day I drank. I was sick and I was hungover. I was around AA for three weeks, going to those meetings with you, enjoying the meetings. And then I came across a stash of cash and a little amphetamines about the same time, and I'm gone. I'm gone. And two weeks later, I woke up again in that little room, in that nasty, nasty little room. God, I hated that place. It was almost a relief to wake up in the park some morning. <laughs> I mean, the jail doesn't really hold much of a threat. We can do jail. Jail is not a big deal. You know they're going to empty the felony tank first, and then they come in and get us, and we stand down there in front of Judge Ken White, who was calling the misdemeanor calendar in those days in Glendale. And I listened carefully to how he treated the other one. And somebody said guilty with an explanation, and the judge seemed to go for it. It would become my explanation. You can be sure. <laughs> and you get a kick out or you pay or you come back or you do whatever. But that was it. That was it. And I had been doing that. And I had been waking up in the park. And sometimes I woke up in the room and I had a, a couple of problems in that room that were uh, seemed so real to me. I had a radio that would uh, suddenly begin to play. Uh, just play music. And even after I'd pull the plug out of the wall, the thing would play. I'd take it out and put it in the dirt outside, and it would play. And so if you're new and uh, you have one of those radios, they're still around, some of them. <laughs> Welcome home. Welcome. I woke up one morning, and there was a. it was dark in that little room. Dark, but not so dark that I didn't see the rat that was in the corner. 
Oh, that thing, chest. Big guy. He looked a little fierce to me, and I'm on the floor under the cot, and so we're like... <laughs> and I'm thinking I ought to get up on the mattress, and then I'm thinking, no, I'm going to spook him, and he'll charge me, and he'll win, and... And I hung on those indescribable moments. You know, you just hunker down. And then you look at the clock again, and it seems like an hour, but the clock says seven minutes have gone by. Finally, the first light of day, and I looked over there in the corner one more time, and that uh, rat, in some way, had uh, turned into a pair of socks laying over there. So if you're new and you've been held hostage by a pair of socks all night, um, <laughs> welcome, welcome. I uh, And so I'm glad to be here. I woke up in my own bed this morning, recognized that lady uh, that was with me, called her by name, just came to me. I knew her name. <laughs> and I love her. We have much fun together. She's a member of this program. She's a very interesting one in the sense that, uh, well, I, I'll give you a look. We were, had one of those rare Saturdays some months ago where, many years ago, I guess, she, we woke up and she said, what do you want to do today? And I said, I don't know. She said, uh, I know what. I said, what? She said, let's give up an old idea today. I went, oh, God, what? What are you saying? She said, let's give up an old idea. I said, okay, because I'm a good member of AA. I said, oh, okay. Whatever that may mean. She said, good, you go first. (laughs) But I've been thinking about something. I've been thinking about this. There's a line in the book that says, God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Well, I don't get a sense of constant disclosure, do you? No. I think I've got this whole thing about who can make the disclosure. It isn't my wife. It isn't uh, anybody at the office. It isn't the guys I sponsor. Uh, I've been a member of the Pacific Group for many years. Clancy's my son. He can make disclosure (laughs) on Tuesdays from 3 to (laughs) 4. It isn't a guy in the next lane. It isn't any of that. It's just, and I realized that the one of the, as I was had been chewing on this a little bit, I it, it's very clear to me why I don't have a sense of constant disclosure or a, a little more tuned-in sense of disclosure. And that isn't because the information isn't coming in all the time. It's because I've got some kind of a, I have this this old idea that I get to set the parameters of the disclosure, and I keep a lot of information out that way. And that old idea went up in smoke that day. And I, I, it, to, to notice it is to kind of begin to let it go. To say, all right, what's the difference? Who makes the disclosure? I will hear to the extent I can whatever is said, whatever comes up. And I was laughing because it wasn't that long after that. I have this thing, as Steve was talking about, the freeways in California are a challenge. And I, uh, uh if somebody, uh, pulls into my lane suddenly, I, I get annoyed. Uh, it isn't, it's just a personal affront, you know. Uh, and, and you notice that language is so great. It is my lane, after all. You know that. <laughs> and after I did, uh, a couple of months went by and a lady pulled into this lane I was in and I noticed her on her back bumper, she had a little sticker that said, <laughs> relax, it's just a lane change. <laughs> I don't want a disclosure from you today. (laughs) But there it is. But I had none of that going on in those days. I just was drunk and I was in the park and I was in the room and this guy said, go to a meeting. And I'm around these meetings for three weeks, found that stash, drunk for two. And I, I had no place to go. And I knew AA did not work. I knew it did not work. And I went, walked, walked over to the 
club. I had not had a car for some time now. That car, they disappear, you know. <laughs> they just go. They just got some, one seized up. Uh, I'd been saving up for an oil change. But <laughs> and some just go. So I walked over to the Alamo Club of Glendale, up a long flight of steps, hung on the side of a building, and somebody about mid-morning that day, that day, was doing his job in AA because the door was open and the coffee was on. And I walked in, and I recognized his face, and he recognized mine. He said, how are you? Seemed glad to see me. I said, I'm not doing so good. He said, and I wouldn't have gone there. If I had thought of any other place to go, I wouldn't have gone there that day. But I said, I'm not doing good. He said, what happened? I said, I got drunk and I let everybody down. He said, oh, are you alcoholic? He kind of brightened and said, are you alcoholic? <laughs> he was being nice to me and I wanted to be nice to him. I wanted to be honest with him. And so I said, uh, yeah, I've been an alcoholic about a month now. Uh, <laughs> So he said, if you're alcoholic, you're going to drink. You're going to drink. That's what alcoholics do. You didn't let us down. Alcoholics drink. He said, in fact, you'll drink no matter what. <coughs> I could not have said that ten seconds earlier, but when he said it, I had always known it. I drink no matter what. I drink no matter what. Well-intended people, he went on to say that well-intended people in AA would say, don't drink no matter what, and he said, you will drink no matter what. And I knew it. I drink no matter what. I drink. I'll, I, I'm coming home, straight home tonight with the check. I drink. I'm stopping for two and then I'll be, I drink. I won't drink. I'm, I quit drinking. If you knew, did you ever quit? <laughs> There's an interesting thing. First time I quit, I told everybody. <laughs> Always a big mistake. If you're going to quit, don't tell anybody. <laughs> I told my commander I was on active duty at Camp Pendleton in the Marines. I told my the base chaplain. I told the base psychiatrist who turned out to be a dermatologist, but I told him anyway. I <laughs> told my wife, of course, and the minister and all of that. And six weeks later, I'm very, very drunk. And what happened? And thought you quit. We, we try that, you know. The quitting seems like the answer, doesn't it? It seems like that. Uh, if you're new here, it might seem to you that we have quit. And that doesn't seem to be what's happened to us. In fact, I think uh, if it was about quitting, we would we would be told that fairly early on. I think Bob would have gotten up here and read the steps, and it would have been step one: quit. <laughs> Knock it off, goddammit! He doesn't say that. What he step one: you got to get that you are toast. <laughs> all over. Powerless, unmanageable, all that stuff my ego loves. But he said, you'll drink no matter what. And I knew that he wouldn't talk to me about tomorrow. He would not talk to me about tomorrow. He said, stay here. Maybe later you can get uh, something, some food down. They gave me half cups of coffee. And I stayed there that day. And I went to the noon meeting, and I went to the evening meeting, and I never drank again. I never, that was 33 years ago. I never drank again. And I didn't quit. I didn't know. Guy out in California used to say, his name's Chuck, he used to say, uh, if I'd have known that was going to be my last drink, I would have had two. <laughs> hey! So we don't quit. Wilson said, in, in the hospital, in Bill's story in the book, his description of it was this. There at the hospital, I was separated from alcohol for the last time. 
but he wasn't a quitter. There are people that can quit. They come, they quit. You know, the people in this room are not. They haven't quit really. The people that quit, you know, there's nobody here that quit. No alcoholic here that quit. They, there, the people that are quit that quit are not here. You know why? Because they quit. Uh, <laughs> so, and I say it because if you're new, you might think it's your job to quit. Weird, isn't it? You'd think it'd be up to you to quit. And you're here because you can't. But something will happen to you. And I think it's about, can I ask, can I really get that I'm totally powerless? And can I really from there say, help me? My friend Paul in Chicago says, if I have any message, it's the message of one beggar talking to another beggar about where the bread is. We say our prayers. They don't even sound like prayers. Maybe you know your prayer. I can't remember mine, but I know that something remarkable happened to me on the 14th of August, 1966. Absolutely transformative. And it happened so fast. He could not have molded over. I used to, when I was uh, new, read with some annoyance Bill's comment that God comes to most men gradually, but his impact on me was sudden and profound. And I'm thinking, how nice for you, Bill. (laughs) But that was my experience, and perhaps it'll be yours. I mean, on the 14th of August, 1966, I was a drunk. And on the 15th of August, I was not a drunk. And I haven't been a drunk since then. And that is sudden and it's profound because it goes right to that piece of me that needs to drink more than anything that's very deep there is a piece in me that's never going to get it and I had to develop some compassion for that piece in me that's never going to get it but there's a piece in me that's never going to relinquish my right to drink And that piece in me went up in a puff of smoke that day, that day. And it has to be that. That's what a birthday is all about, an anniversary in Alcoholics Anonymous. And if um, you think your prayers are futile, oh, I think he, I think he hears them. I, I, I think that there is so, see, I don't think he's boggled by our idiocy, by our profanity, by our anger. I love the talk that uh, uh, Terry, Father Terry gave one time. He talked about, uh, after he had spoken at another conference, a, a cowboy who had driven across the state of Nevada to hear him speak in Reno came up to him and thanked him so much and said, I drove clear across the state to hear from you. And he said, how was your trip? And he said, I had a wonderful trip. God came with me. He got me a pickup truck right around Elko and came in with me. Father Terry said, what did you find out from God? And he said the most wonderful thing. He said, well, he's not pissed off. That's right. That's right. He's not. I loved it when Gail W. in Los Angeles, now dead sober, one night at a meeting, was talking about the alcoholic's prayer. She spoke from a recall of a moment in a nasty, drunken woman's apartment in Los Angeles. I'm new in AA. I'm listening to her. She's elegant and attractive and has this poise and magnificence to her. And she unfolds this story that makes me know that she and I are a lot alike. Because she said she came out of a blackout in her apartment in Hollywood sitting on the mantle over the fireplace. And I'm liking her more, you know. With her cat. And there's a little cat food and vodka up there, a little something for everybody, and I'm thinking, uh, I wonder if she'd go out to dinner with me. Uh, My kind of gal. Just a kind of a pig, you know? And they went there because there was four inches of water on the floor. And that was because she had started to take a bath last Tuesday and the whole deal got away from her. And And I'm going, yes, yes! 
Me, baby. I loved her for that story. And right behind it, she's saying, and that's when I said the alcoholic's prayer. And she told us what it was. Her prayer. Jesus, God, what's wrong with me? That prayer. That profane, angry, despairing, heartbreaking prayer. He hears that. He honors the slightest move in his direction. And he did that for me, and I didn't even know it. You'd think we'd know exactly when the obsession of drink is removed. I didn't know that. I had no idea. I just woke up nine months later, on a day when they had allowed me to see my youngest son for the first time in years, without any adult supervision, and I realized that day, somehow during that day, as Michael and I were standing at the beach looking out over the Pacific in Santa Monica, God, I haven't had a drink. I counted back, you know, it was... Nine months. And I was amazed. It brought tears to my eyes. That is such a shift. And he never was boggled by my idiot. And I didn't really have any idea that it would be possible for me to be in relationship with that power. There is a 12-step place, a recovery home in Tucson beautiful painting on the in the foyer, a painting of a drunk. This guy, you glance at the painting and you're caught by it because he's at the curb and his shoe is off and his other shoe is just chewed up and his shirt is gone and his eyes are empty and his bottle is empty and he's just one of us at the worst. And somebody put some verse on the side of it. It says, it's true I'm a drunk and my soul lives in the shadow of my emotions. And yet, my life has had its meaning. There have been songs for me. But the hand that made me and all that I have ever been has deserted me. And the last two lines will break your heart. He says, would anyone ever know that my life with all its ruined hours has been a search for him? Yeah. Yeah. Because when I was a kid, and they took us to church, and boy, did they. And we got sent out to the Yellowstone River to be baptized early in March. And yeah, mm. And I'm 12 years old, and they scared me with that one, boy. I, I didn't find God. I, uh, I didn't find much of anything for about three days. That'll scare little Clinty, I'll tell you that. And I watched him go down to the front and get saved. I watched my uncle go down to the... And they sent him to China to be a missionary. And I thought, man, stay away from the front of that church. Wow. None of the people that had been bitten by that bug looked attractive to me. Oh, once in a while there was somebody, but most of them, no. Fundamentalism, very hellfire and brimstone, very harsh, very... It was all about belief and uh, and the virtue of belief. Hard to take. And I got mad at my mother so early in life. Oh, I was so angry with her. I I was furious with her when I didn't. When she 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 and I were so close when I was four years old, three years old. I was her favorite. God, I adored my mother. Oh, she would tuck me in at night, and I adored her. And we'd whisper our little secrets and we would laugh our laughter and we would say our prayers. And I had no objection to any of it. I loved it. I was her faith. From my point of view, I was her faith. And the day came when she said she was going to bring another baby home from the hospital. And I'm okay with that. And she did bring a baby home from the hospital and they had a little room set aside for her and there was a little crib in there and they seemed and uh, my I, my mother's attention and energy and time and resource was all directed in there, and I I lost her. And so I began to go in that little nursery and encourage my sister to move out. I'd give her a little thump on the head. I got to get my mama back. And of course, my mom figured that out fast and caught me in there one day and 
picked me up in her fear and anger and threw me right out into the hall. And before I hit the floor, I knew she doesn't love me. Never did. Never did. She pretended that she did. It was a hoax. I felt so foolish and so hurt and so upset. Oh, God. And it becomes for a child, you don't love me. I don't love you either. I don't love you. And we went to war. We went to war. She could make me mow the lawn later on years old, but she could not beat me long enough to get me to cut around the edges of the sidewalk. My little line in the sand. And I felt so put upon. And before I get too far into my own personal tragedy, I will leap ahead a little bit to a point when I was about seven years sober and I was giving a talk in the participating at a meeting in L.A. And a guy came up to me afterwards. He said, uh, you mentioned Billings. Uh, did you uh, live on Yellowstone Avenue? I said, uh, yeah. He said, did you go to Broadwater Grade School? I said, yes. He said, do you have a brother named Carl? I said, I do. He said, my dad told me to never play with you two guys. <laughs> and so we were a pair. And we were nasty little kids. And we were a problem to my mother. And it was all from my point of view like she lied to me when she said she didn't love me. And now I could never trust her again. Never. Didn't know for a long time in AA that I had to know you can't trust them. Important women in your life can't trust them. Oh, for a while, yeah, but one day, no, no. That's not good for a relationship, that kind of thing. Not at all. And she got sick, I was 12, I guess, and she was sick for about a year, and I turned 14 by the time I stood at her grave in the low-rent part of the cemetery in Billings, and they were throwing dirt in there, and I, I didn't cry. You don't love me? I don't love you either. But I couldn't breathe deeply then for two years and then after a party in high school, alcohol, vodka. And I took the first deep breath I had taken in a while. And now I knew why my dad drank. See, I discovered when I was about five at about the time all this started that I'm not big enough for this life. I'm not big enough. And I knew underneath that, inherently I knew that I should be big enough and I have to keep you from finding out that I'm not big enough. And so maybe the money I can steal from the missionary jar, maybe the candy I can get out of the store, maybe in one day, vodka, that makes me big enough. It wasn't the lies so much. It wasn't the candy. It wasn't the theft. It wasn't any of that. It's the booze. And now I had a secret and I, uh, it started at a party in high school for me when I was 16. And when I, the party was over, I was, uh, 29 and living in that shed in, uh, Glendale. And the party was over, boy, I'll tell you. But that's where I left it, all at the side of the road. Anger at my mother and my grandmother and upset and difficulty. And I enjoyed a talk very much that I heard not long ago from Ray on the East Coast. He said after he was about five years sober, his sponsor, there's a lot of ways to describe chronic untreated alcoholism. This idea that we treated our alcoholism with booze up until the day the obsession is removed and we don't have booze in our life anymore and we've been given the gift of sobriety which is a strange gift because we have the rest of our lives to become comfortable with that gift. And now what am I treating my alcoholism with? What am I treating that strange condition with? What am I treating my own particular brand of insanity with? And I really didn't think I had a lot of trouble with step two because restored to sanity. I, and I, a guy told me, uh, he said, uh, and I've been sober sometime. Write down the ten craziest things you ever did and bring me the list. And we'll talk about sanity and insanity. Because the question for you is not whether you're insane. The question is, what would sanity look like? And uh, I wrote him down. I went back to him with my list. I got a first time I ever got to jail was uh, I was in college at the University of Oregon, and I got arrested off of the fire escape ladder at the uh, Tridelt sorority house about midnight. It was a simple enough story. I I had been drinking in an off-campus beer bar. Uh, 
There was a very pretty girl in the bar, and she almost looked at me, and so I felt we had a future uh, <laughs> together. And I was going up that ladder to talk to her about our future when I got arrested off of there. So I put that down on my little thing. A couple of years later, I met the dental school as a student. Uh, Saturday morning, 8 o'clock clinic, somebody in a chair. I'm supposed to be doing something. Uh, but I get drunk on Friday night, and I drop two ampules of uh, dexedrine or dexamil on Saturday morning. And I, uh, it gives you a little shakiness, you know, a kind of a tremor. And I, uh, and they just come out with that new high-speed air-driven handpiece. And it's uh, <laughs> not a good combination. It really... I made a set of dentures for a guy the first year I was there, and he came back the second year, and he was in the clinic, and he'd see me at the end, and he'd go, Say, say. <laughs> Something wrong with my teeth. <laughs> that one on my list, I'm in, they threw me out at the end of that second year, and I have to wait to go in the Marine Corps. I've been getting all these deferments, and I, uh, did drinking on Burnside Street, Skid Row drinking, good drinking, good, good. It's easy drinking there, boy. They don't ask a lot of questions like, how are you? Or any of that. <laughs> you just drink. Came out of a blackout, a little table there, and I'm sitting across the table, a little carved up wooden table. A room lit like this room, and every once in a while a sheriff deputy would walk through. It's just a room devoted to alcoholic drinking. That sheriff's deputy would walk through and keep everything kind of down, and me and Indians and all kinds of people there. And there was a lady sitting across that little table from me, a woman there, and I, um, I, I, I didn't know when we had met, uh, how long we'd been together, the nature of our relationship. <laughs> I'd know, but I felt like we were kind of together. You know what I mean? And, and perhaps traveling because she had her things with her in little bags and uh, perplexing to come out of just wow look at that I would have asked her a few questions but she was sleeping and uh, <laughs> she had some chili on her cheeks so I knew we had we knew we had dinner that night <laughs> a delicate flower to be sure that I had invited to dine. There's a line in one of those personal stories in the book that uh, describes my life. It's the log line of my life. This guy says of himself, somehow I got out of there. I did. Whether it was a job or the Marine Corps or jail or a marriage or a fight or a bar or whatever was going on between me and this person, I got out of there. I wrote that down on my list. I wrote down getting offered an opportunity in the Marine Corps to resign my commission for the good of the service and to avoid a trial by court-martial. Bad day in my life. The commander said there's no room in the Marine Corps, lieutenant, for an alcoholic. It went on my list. Crazy stuff. Because I loved the Marine Corps. I loved it. And I really wanted to do a good job with it. And I couldn't pack the gear. And I uh, got out, and I uh, lived in Glendale in an apartment for a while with a car, and then in the car itself, and then in the shed. Last drunk driving arrest I had that was noteworthy only because the guy's police report said, which I saw a couple of weeks after he arrested me, took me down to jail, that I discontinued the field sobriety test because the suspect was injuring himself. And <laughs> that goes on my list. I got all this on my list. I go back to this guy and I said, here it is. And he looked at the list. He said, this is a lot of crazy stuff on your list. This is the craziest stuff you ever did. I said, yeah, much as I can remember. He said, it's interesting because the craziest thing you ever did didn't make your list. I said, what are you talking about? He said, no, it didn't make it. I said, what? He said, and you did it repeatedly, and you never did it while you were drunk. You always did it while you were sober. I said, what? 
He said, there's so much evidence in here that you should never drink. True? And I said, yeah. And he said, in between every two drunks, the most insane thing you could possibly do, especially with all this evidence in place, is you decided from a dry brain to take another drink. That's crazy. And he said, you brought that mind into Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, do you have any belief that a power greater than you can restore you to sanity? There, and as Ray said, this whole idea of chronic untreated alcoholism, when he was five years sober, his sponsor said it this way, there's something else the matter with you. Boy, I heard that. I heard that. Yeah, what about those relationships? What about this? What about what about that search for power all the time? What was that? I was five years sober. I went to law school. Nine years sober. They gave me a license to practice law, which, making progress, I couldn't get a license to drive a car when I came here, you know. <laughs> so we're moving along. And I love doing that work, and I'm good at it, and it's not a source of power. And then in my finer moments, I say, all right, I'll get into this spiritual part of the program and I'll uh, and uh, then I can get power that I can use to manage my life. And they, no, 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 no. You don't get a line of credit on the power. You can't write it down the way you want to. It isn't power you can use to manage your life. It's power that will manage your life. And I don't want to hear that kind of stuff. Because I want to run it. My ego does not go for that. My ego's got... All of this middle ground to play in. Here are the extremes. I can lay in that little shed and bark like a fox and crawl around on that sticky linoleum floor. Or the opposite extreme is I can get sent to China to be a missionary. And that seems to me to be how it's going to go if I turn my will and my life over to the care of God. And the real problem with both those extremes is only one. And that is I don't have control either way. I have no control. No power. So I set about to find the middle ground where I can have control. I don't want to accept spiritual help, but I am willing to ask for it. Oh, God, please help me be more tolerant over the new per- The phone rings and it's the new guy. Shut up, I'm praying. I'll be back with you. <laughs> it's a fascinating journey. It's just fascinating. Just fascinating. And of course, like all of us, the day came when I had to then finally get uh, serious about these steps. It's so wonderful to take an inventory and have a little respect for the fact that it's about power. I mean, who do I resent? I resent people that have more power than I do. Even a guy on the street in L.A. that comes up and gives me a, asks me for a buck at that moment has the power to make me feel weird. And he goes on my list. Who am I afraid of? I'm afraid of people that look more powerful. And what about that sex inventory? That is a chronicle of all the ways in which I tried to extract power from a situation that is not a legitimate source of power. And you bundle all that up and you look at it and it's really quite something. And you read it to somebody else and there is some quite a... You know, we get free in that process. The the miracle of sobriety is the fact that the obsession to drink has been removed. And there is then in recovery of freedom. When I was going to meetings for relief, I got relief. And when I was being of service, I got relief. But there's a big difference between relief and freedom. And the freedom that arises out of this process of the steps, if we really do it, is much different than the relief. And we get to come back to the service and the unity with a completely different purpose. Quite different. Taking a look at six and all those ideas that I had and at seven and all of that, do I have a God that's big enough to provide an entire psychic change for me? To give me a new mind? And by that time, because of his grace and because of the miracles in my life. See, I had had a problem with miracles. You know, I missed the miracles in my life because I took credit for them. Good way to miss them. And now I'm beginning to open up a little bit to this whole thing. And the most wonderful thing is, this is, this is step six, uh, became willing 
to let go of these old ideas, these defects. Step seven says humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. With the implication that he'll do just that if we're willing to let him go. Funny business. I was, it seemed like every step along the way I was, had some wonderful experience that made it possible for me. Possible for me. Blind faith was never required. I'm up in Northern California. I'm at six, six and seven. I got my six-step list, and I'm looking at seven, and I'm thinking, and a woman gave a remarkable talk for me. Her name escapes me at the moment. She was from Reno. She was 21 years sober. She spoke of a time that she was 10 years sober, and she wanted to get over her fear of heights, and so she decided to take skydiving lessons. And I'm going, wow. That wouldn't be my approach, but she took skydiving lessons, and she's one day... After a while, it's time for her to solo out of an airplane and there's the airplane's coming over the drop zone and in the drop zone is her husband and her ex-husband and her... I don't know why he was there. <laughs> the women she sponsored, her children, and she had packed the chute herself and she came out and the chute didn't open right and she hit that ground going a lot faster than she was supposed to be going. And I will never forget her words. She described it. She said, I spent the next year and a half of my life in a hospital learning how to urinate again. And I'm going, wow, wow. But she lived to tell the tale, and she's up there telling the tale in a wonderfully elegant way. And she said her husband left her, but her ex-husband, who was in AA, came back into her life as a friend, and they were having, they were in the rehab thing one day. And he was over there helping her with lunch, and uh, they spoke for hours after that. And finally he said, how come, Joyce, how, her name is Joyce, how come you did that? She said, you mean, that?" she said, yeah, what was that about? And she said, I was just trying to get over my fear of heights. And he started to laugh, which annoyed her. And she finally said, uh, what are you laughing about? He said, all you had to do was humbly ask. I went, God, we're tapped into that kind of power. And I've been jumping out of airplanes all my sobriety. Or Chuck said, uh, there's two ways to do it. The tough way is to do it alone. The easy way is to know you can't. Somehow or other, I always thought my requests would be refused. And I came to see they weren't refused. Not at all. Never. Never. As soon as I had uh, become willing and honest enough to try, I could be in relationship with this power. That's what uh, Abby told Bill. He gave him the steps, what became the steps. And Bill's comment was, my friend promised me that when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my creator. Now, he could have told him a lot of things. He could have said, you will uh, not have to drink if you do these steps, or you uh, can get back in the big bed if you do these steps, or you'll have a job. If you, He didn't say that. He didn't say any of that. He just simply said, my friend told me when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my Creator. And I, uh, my life with all its ruined hours had been a search for that. And I didn't even know it because I didn't think I could ever have it. I didn't think that. And seven then became a remarkably freeing experience because I humbly asked. Not to help me, just Take them away. Take them away. Yes. says the things that you find unacceptable. Ask him to take those. It's what I find unacceptable. And my life began to change. And I had a long list of people I'd hurt. And I had to get on the road. They said, make direct amends. Can I do it by phone? Did you do the harm by phone? Well, no. Get on an airplane. Fly to Portland, talk to your brother. Fly to Denver, talk to your sister. Fly to the East Coast, to Atlanta, talk to your little brother. The one thing I was never going to do was go back to that grave in Billings. No, sir. No, sir. I was willing to go to the grave in uh, Warner Robins where my dad is. And I uh, took a care of a few amends and more and more. And then there was the one. And they asked me to come up to Billings. And I said no. And they asked me the following year. I said, 
And now I'm under new management. I said, okay, I'll come up. And I had quite a weekend in Billings because it included the trip to the cemetery. That I did not, it scared me. I was like going back into the witch's den. I tramped around that cemetery for an hour before I could find my mother's marker. A little marker that gave her name and then the year of her birth and the year of her death and that little dash in between that signifies a life. Oh God, I was afraid. I didn't know what I would find. My, find. my sponsor had told me to write a letter and take it up. But Al-Anon, a dear, dear Al-Anon friend of mine had gone up with me because she was speaking there too. And she gave me a shopping bag with a bottle of water in it and some shears and some Kleenex and some paper towels and some flower seeds and said, you'll need these things. Take them out there with you. And a guy from Billings drove me out there and waited and I went in there and I stood there at that grave. I finally put that, made a little, uh, buried that letter. I walked down to my grandma's grave and came back up and I finally knelt down there and I took out those shears and I started to clip around the marker because the grave was the grave site was not in real good shape. I wanted to clean it up. But when I found myself flipping around there, the thing I would never do for her, the tears started. And I thought they would never end. I wept and I wept and I wept. And I would get up to you'd think I was done and I would have to go back and weep my tears. A long time had gone by since I was a 14-year-old kid. I had been in the far country a long time, drunk and sober. And finally, at the end of that time, I knew for the first time in my life that I had cried all my tears. And I knew I was free, and I knew she loved me, and I knew I adored her, and that I could always trust her. The day never came, I couldn't do that. What a strange, strange sleepiness I had been in. And just as an ironic, not ironic, but a loving footnote, the Al-Anons in Billings, I was told the following week, had taken on a new task. My friend Corinne said they want to make sure your mother's grave always looks great. And they go out there when the snow is off the ground and and they'll send me a photograph and a card and people say, I was at your mother's grave. I felt closer to my dad. Alana. Loving, loving Alana. Mindless stuff, you know. There's no... And so today, when I take these guys through the steps, I, I'm always interested in four and five and six and seven. And step nine has become a, a series of amazing events. These guys are something. They're really something. We get the power to do step two from step one and from the power to do three from step two and so on. And you cannot, cannot have any power to do amends to really go out there and ask, what can I do to set this right? Unless you've done the first eight. That taps into the power. It's not my power, but it's, or theirs, it's power. Alan, uh, has been all his life a building contractor. And he had a lot of doors to knock. He had to go see, I remodeled your home and I know I didn't finish the job well. What can I do to set it right? And boy, they will tell you. <laughs> you can fix the hole in the damn roof is what you can do. And he spent a year and a half of his life, about half of his time, without charging anybody anything getting all that cleaned up and he's got a very, very handsome list of references now in a very thriving business. And Tom, my dear, dear Tom, was a, he was a window washer, but really he was a burglar. (laughs) And the window washing let him know exactly where to go back at night, you know. His territory was South Pasadena and he would go there. And he had about maybe a dozen homes that he could remember. And it takes some power to go knock on those doors. Hi, did you live here ten years ago when your home was burglarized? Yeah, I did that. And I'm here to clean it up with you. 
He got it all done. He got it all done miraculously. There was one left and he called me one morning and said, I got to go back. He had gone there and he'd parked and couldn't go up or he had knocked and they weren't home and he knew this morning he had to do it. It was the last one on his list. He knocked on the door. An older couple was there. He called me later that morning and told me he had done this because I had offered to go with him because the fear had not lessened. They invited him in. He called me and told me, it's done, I've done it. They asked him a lot of questions, he said. I said, uh, is it complete? He said, yeah. Did you ask him what you could do to clean it up? He said, yeah. What are you, what are you going to do? He said, they told me I didn't have anything to do. He asked him, why not? Why are you saying that? And this older couple said, because until right now, we have always thought our son had done that. And a family healed up and he's free and I'm free and you have stumbled into the most amazing experience of your life. Welcome home.